0: We're considering the question, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. This morning, we're going to take up the theme of God's goodness and consider what we learn about that particular theme in Matthew chapters 18 to 20. We'll be in quite a large part of Scripture this morning. One of my favorite passages of scripture is in Exodus 33 most God perhaps the best question thing to ask of the Lord but knowing that to For God to disclose his glory to Moses at that moment in its fullness would require Moses to die because no one can stand in the presence of a living God and live on earth. He nevertheless says to Moses that he will cause all of his goodness to pass before him. And of course he hides him in a rock, which is where we get our hymn, Rock of Ages, from. Hides him there and then causes all of his goodness to pass before him but it's interestingly how he describes his goodness he says i'm going to pass before you and i'm going to proclaim my name which is the essence of what god's goodness is he says in exodus 34 the lord the lord the compassionate and gracious god slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness that is god's goodness It's the Lord, the compassionate, the gracious God, the God who is slow to anger, the God who is sympathetic with us in our our misery, the God who treats us as we don't deserve, the God who is loyal and persistent in His love, the God who is patient and long-suffering, the God who keeps His promises. This is a God who is good and does good. And yet, The ways in which he manifests his goodness, even as he did to Moses there, can be strange in our own lives. We can have preconceived ideas about what it means for God to manifest his goodness to us. Perhaps some of us this morning feel like, well, if if God answers my prayers in in all the ways that I pray, then he is truly good. Well, is he? he, What if he doesn't? Is he still good? Well, God God is good if if and when life goes the way I want it to go or this situation goes the way I want it to go. If I pray, God, be good to me today. Show me your goodness, and it doesn't pan out that way. What do we make of that? Is he still good? One of the things that Jesus is going to teach us in Matthew 18 to 20 is that God's goodness shows up in our lives in ways that don't feel like it's immediately good. This is what we meet in the text we just read with the rich young ruler. Good question. He comes to Jesus and he says, What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's a guy that wants to be good, wants to do good, wants to get to heaven. And Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Was it good for Jesus to remind him of that in that moment? Yes. In fact, that was the way that God's goodness manifested itself was by convincing this young ruler that he wasn't good. And God does the same in our lives. Theme of the sermon this morning that I want to focus on is the way in which God demonstrates his goodness in our life fundamentally is by showing us that we aren't. God's goodness is demonstrated by showing us that we aren't good. The main point that Matthew wants us to see in these chapters is about how life in the kingdom of God, or what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple, how that life works. What we're going to see is that in the kingdom of God, the one thing that qualifies us is knowing that we don't qualify. And the one thing that disqualifies us is thinking that we do. We're going to see that in five different ways this morning. First of all, our minimalism doesn't make us good. Our minimalism doesn't make us good. A thread runs through chapter 18, verse 21, through chapter 19, verse 12, with this common question that gets asked. What's the least I can do? Jesus. What's the least I can do? Let's look at one example in beginning in verse 21 of chapter 18, where we read, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? What's the least I can do, Jesus? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle one who was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when the same servant went out and he found out one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii, And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers till he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Sobering words, a sobering parable. But one that teaches us something about the nature of the kingdom of God, of life in the kingdom of God. Minimalism doesn't cut it in the kingdom. Peter asked Jesus how often he's required to forgive his brother. Okay, Jesus, what's the bar? At what point can I finally stop having to forgive people? I mean, there's a limit, right? Peter's asking what the minimum has to do. What's the minimum to qualify? He's asking what's the least he can do with respect to forgiveness. But lest we think that's only a problem with disciples, the very next account has a very similar point except this time with the Pharisees. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning male, then made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such a, is a case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it's given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now notice in verse 3, the question is similarly minimalist from the Pharisees. What's the least I can do with respect to marriage? At what point have I fulfilled what's required of me in the Jewish law regarding marriage? In other words, when is it appropriate to kick my spouse to the curb? We see that underneath the external distinctions that may exist between the blue-collar fisherman Peter and the white-collar clergyman Pharisee, between those who have given up everything to follow Jesus and those who feel threatened by Jesus is a similar heart issue and it even continues with the educated and the risk rich rich as we will see momentarily the rich young man is essentially engaged in this same sort of minimalism behind all these questions is one big question what's the least I can do with respect to obedience to qualify for the kingdom of God and in all three instances the instance with Peter the instance with the Pharisee, the instance with the rich young ruler. We are given minimalism in various forms. Whether a disciple, a Pharisee, or a rich man, the question is the same. What's the minimum obedience to God that I can render to get him off my back? This is a natural question. And that's what makes it so bad. In part, it reveals a heart that merely wants the benefits of a relationship with God without a relationship with God. It's spiritual adultery of the highest order. We want the rewards of discipleship without paying the cost of discipleship. We want to have our cake and eat it too. We want a crown without a cross. We don't want to part with all of our sin just enough to get us into heaven. We don't want the inconvenient whole life demands that faith in Christ requires. We just want a manageable, convenient Christianity. A little church here, a little prayer there, and the golden ticket to eternal life has been punched. I mean, you don't really expect people to keep on forgiving, keep on loving, keep on obeying, do you, Jesus? I mean everyone has their limits not me says Jesus if we ask what's the minimum I need to do to follow Jesus we're already disqualified from following Jesus and it reveals to us that we're not good because we don't really want Jesus do we, we want something else so our minimalism doesn't make us good second our maturity doesn't make us good Look at verse 13 to 15, continuing our reading. It might be helpful if you've got a physical Bible or if you just want to pull it up on your, on, your, on your app, on your phone. We'll be in Matthew 18 to 20. We'll be reading quite a bit of Scripture. Not all of this will be on the screen, so it might just be helpful to have it in front of you. Matthew 19, 13 to 15. Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuke the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away now the disciples seem to think here that in order to gain Jesus attention a person needed to be of a certain social or age stand a social standing or age requirement you have to remember that children in Jesus time were not necessarily regarded as special or particularly enduring endearing that is to people besides their parents it wasn't, it wasn't common in that culture. The disciples most likely rebuked the, those who were bringing their children to Jesus because they felt that bringing children to Jesus was a socially improper move. You don't do that when a rabbi is busy teaching. You don't do that when a rabbi is busy what, with, with whatever he's doing because they thought that the children would bother the rabbi. The disciples, therefore, had good reason to think this business of bringing children to Jesus was inappropriate and somewhat bothersome. It's like waiting in line to ask Jesus to tie your shoe. Hey, just go ask your parents that, man. Just go go over there. Or clamoring for Jesus, would you pet my hamster? The man's busy, okay? After this is done, you can talk to him. But he can't be bothered with trifles right now. He's doing kingdom work. The disciples were just trying to manage their master's time. They were trying to be good administrative assistants to a busy rabbi. Except they had no idea what mattered to the master at all. Jesus' response was to rebuke the disciples for keeping the the children from him. Only once is this word indignant used of Jesus. That's how he felt when the twelve began to shoo the children away. The whole purpose of people bringing their children to Jesus was why? That he might lay his hands on them and pray for them. Jesus viewed the disciples' response as hindering the children, as making it appear that he wasn't approachable or welcoming to them. This would likely prejudice the minds of both the people and the children as to the kinds of people Jesus wants to spend his time with. To the kind of people he receives. The people who get the undivided attention of Jesus are not the mature, older adults of high social standing. It's the children. In fact, Jesus turns the very scene into an object lesson about who is welcome in the kingdom and who is excluded from the kingdom. Unless we receive the kingdom as the little children behave, dependent, unimpressive, humble, seeking the blessing of Jesus on us, we'll never enter the kingdom. This has a word specifically for you boys and girls here this morning. Boys and girls, you are never too young to come to Jesus. And you are never too young for him to want you to do so. Although his time on earth was precious, and grown-ups wanted to take up a lot of his time, He was willing to give his undivided attention to little boys and girls. Jesus is strong and kind, and he will receive you if you come to him by faith. If you confess your sins and you ask him to save you, ask him to bless you, and dependently and humbly rely on him to keep his promise. And church, let us not behave as the disciples did here, keeping the little children from Jesus, thinking that they would be an inconvenience on his time. J.C. Ryle's words still ring true. He says, No church can be regarded as healthy as being in a healthy state which neglects its, its younger members and lazily excuses itself on the plea that young people will be young and that it's useless to try to do them good. Such a church shows plainly that it's not the mind of, it has not the mind of Christ. A congregation which consists of none but grown-up people whose children are idling at home or running wild in the streets or fields is a most deplorable and unsatisfactory sight. The members of such a congregation might pride themselves on their numbers, on the soundness of their own views. They may content themselves with loud assertions that they cannot change their children's hearts, that they will convert them someday, God will convert them someday if he thinks fit. But they have yet to learn that Christ regards them as neglecting a solemn duty and that Christians who do not use every means to bring children to Christ are committing a great sin. See, when Jesus noticed his disciples ignoring the children, that's when he speaks up. He became the advocate. Of children, making the strong and self-sufficient grown-ups stand and wait while the seemingly insignificant members of the crowd monopolize this time. And this comes to mind even now, as children in our culture are increasingly preyed upon. Preyed upon to get confused about their gender. Preyed upon for the sexual perversity of adults. Preyed upon for meeting some desire that a parent has. And here's where we can speak up and say, no, just as Jesus advocated for children, we're going to advocate for children. And especially when it comes to their concerns with the kingdom of God. Instead of courting the people who really mattered in the eyes of the world, Jesus remained perfectly content to hold a vulnerable infant in his arms as an example of God's kingdom because we don't qualify for the kingdom by maturity. We don't qualify for the kingdom by social standing because we're somebody. Jesus needs to listen to me. I'm somebody. I'm important. No. Are you humble like a child? Are you dependent like a child? Are you needy like a child? can't keep yourself alive without Jesus we don't qualify for the kingdom by maturity we qualify by receiving it like a little child so our maturity doesn't make us good either third our morality doesn't make us good our morality doesn't make us good we read the pair or the 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 account with the rich young ruler in in Matthew 19 verse 16 and following at the beginning of the sermon so I'm not gonna read it again But I do want you to notice just what happens here. So the rich man comes up to Jesus, simple question, right? What what must I do to inherit eternal life? What good deed do I need to do? Here's a man who's able to buy everything in life. He can pay for everything, so surely he can buy salvation as well. I mean, this is a transaction he can handle. Even though he knows he can't buy it financially with his money, maybe he could do it morally with his life. Yet, it's hard to give a right answer to a wrong question. Which is why Jesus answers him the way he does. The whole question assumes that we can get eternal life by being moral, by being good. Morality is important, but it's irrelevant when it comes to entering the kingdom of God. But Jesus plays along and he says, well, how are you doing regarding the commandments? He lists several of the commandments, murder, adultery, theft, others all the observable sins that he's kept himself from, and then he conveniently leaves out the internal invisible one that you can't see on the surface, which is covetousness, which is the breaking of the 10th commandment. And that's invisible, and it's the one the man's guilty of breaking. And so the young man replies confidently, well, all these I've kept. Moralistic obedience i've done it but moralistic obedience can be damning because it often masquerades as a cover-up for idolatry scrupulous specific obedience got to do this and this and this, this 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 way this way scrupulous obedience is not always but it can be thinly veiled disobedience so Jesus proceeds to expose his covetous heart by asking him to sell everything that he has. Not Jesus' covetous heart, the young man's covetous heart. Pronouns are important here. He exposes the man's sin, not by showing him that he needed to give away his material possessions to follow God, but that his material possessions were his God. And so when the man went away, the disciples were understandably shocked, which is we'll see why in just a moment. See, morality doesn't make us good. It doesn't qualify us for the kingdom of heaven. Mor- moralism is rooted in external rule keeping. It's utterly cons- unconcerned with the condition of the heart. The internal motivations of why we do what we do. Just because a person comes seeking for salvation doesn't mean they really want it. We got we to gotta, gotta get underneath that. I want to be saved. You may not. Depending on what you mean by saved, what do you want to be saved from? Saved from the wrath of God? That's a great thing. Saved from your sin? All of it? That's a great thing. But there are other reasons that may not be so good. Something else could be behind that altogether just because we want to clean up our lives or turn over our new leaf or raise our children in the church or be a better person doesn't mean we want to be saved. To be saved means that we recognize like Jesus was trying to get the rich man to see that we haven't kept any of the commandments the way that we should. For the commandments speak as much of internal reality as external reality. We aren't only to Not commit adultery, we aren't to lust. We aren't only not to commit murder, we aren't to be unjustly angry with another person. We aren't only not to steal, we're to be radically generous. When Jesus said, No one is good except God alone, the rich man should have said, Oh, so that means that I'm not either. And that would have been the right conclusion. The conclusion that all of us need to come to. We aren't good. We may keep some commandments externally, but internally we have idolatry living in our hearts. If we are every, ever going to be saved, we have to keep give up thinking that it will come from us being good. The question is not, who is righteous enough to make the cut? The question is, who will confess they can never make the cut? The strange paradox presented here on every page of the Gospels is that it's not guilt which is the obstacle to grace but morality that often is supposed by the person that is the greatest obstacle to receiving grace. It's not that we've done bad. It's our good works and all that we want to hold on to to keep our own reputations intact. It's the repression of guilt that's our greatest obstacle, the self-justification, the smug self-righteousness, which is the real obstacle to enter the kingdom of God. The deepest distinctions among human beings, according to Jesus, is not between the bad and the good. It's between those who know they are bad and those who know they aren't. That's the distinction. In the world's thinking, the good are in, whatever the good are, whoever the good are, and it changes with the generations, it seems. Whoever the good are are in, whoever the bad are are out. But that's not Jesus' way of thinking. We're all bad. The humble are in, the proud are out no matter how good they think they are. The humble are in, the proud are out. Don't care about the goodness, badness distinctions. So let's not play that game, goodness and badness. Let's talk about humility and pride because that's the way the Bible casts the issue. So we've seen our minimalism doesn't make us good. Our morality doesn't make us good. Our maturity doesn't make us good. Fourthly, our martyrdom doesn't make us good. As we see in verse 23, the disciples are shocked by these recent turn of events with the rich young ruler. They're shocked. Why are they shocked? Because for people in the Jewish world, and for some in maybe more heretical corners of the professing Christian church today, financial gain and prosperity was the sign of God's blessing on a person's life. Doesn't Proverbs 10.22 tell us, The blessing of the Lord makes rich. In Deuteronomy 28, material blessing is linked to spiritual blessing. So in verses 23 and 24, when the disciples say, Who then can be saved? It's coming from an honest place. God blessed that rich young ruler with all that money. And he's not in? What? If people God blesses are not in the kingdom, then what does that mean for me? They're saying, if those at the top... Of the social stratosphere on whom God has so clearly smiled with financial prosperity. If they can't get in, what hope is there for a fisherman like me? I don't have that level of divine favor on my life. Well, Jesus gives a response in verse 26. And he says, like he does in verse 23, it's impossible. It's impossible for you to enter the kingdom, Peter. It's impossible for the rich man to enter the kingdom. It's impossible. Thanks, Jesus. Brings a lot of hope and comfort. I appreciate that. But remember, God's goodness is by convincing us we aren't. Peter still thinks he's good. You don't believe me? Keep reading. Jesus says, it's worse than you think, Peter. And yet, hidden in this answer is the hope we all need. Because entering the kingdom is impossible for us in terms of our intuitive, natural, moralizing, domesticated, get what you work for way of understanding the world and how God relates to people. Jesus tells us that that road is a dead end. It's closed. No access. You don't get in the kingdom that way. But with God, all things are possible. See, with God, there is Lavish grace, there's wild, out of proportion, get more than you ask for as long as you don't try to pay for it, grace. With this way, all things are possible, salvation included. See, operating on Peter's scheme, it's impossible. Operating on the rich man's scheme, it's impossible. But with God, it's possible because salvation through the work of man is impossible. But salvation through the work of the God-man is possible. More than possible, it's certain. So Peter pipes up as he's prone to do. We've left everything to follow you. I've given everything up. I'm the total opposite of this guy. You said leave everything? I did. Everything. You said come, follow me. I'll I'll make you fishers of men. Dropped the nets. Went with you immediately. If I'm not in, who is? Peter doesn't understand 1 Corinthians 13, 3. You can give your body to be burned and have not love. And that's nothing. Peter, just because you've left everything, doesn't merit you anything with me. What? Martyrdom doesn't make you good, Peter, I paid the ultimate price, Jesus. That doesn't matter. My ultimate price is what matters. Peter clearly viewed himself as the opposite of the rich man. Rich man refused to leave house and home to follow Jesus. Peter had. Yet though they responded to Jesus in different ways, they're treating discipleship the same way. Both viewed loyalty to Jesus as a transaction. We do our part. God does his part. In the young man's case... I kept the commandments of God, God lets me into heaven. In Peter's case, I'm willing to be martyred, you'll let me into heaven. The young man wanted his money, Peter wanted his reward. Neither was focused on Jesus. As C.S. Lewis said, does it matter to a man dying in a desert by which choice of route he missed the only well? Peter was focused more on his sacrifice for Jesus than Jesus' sacrifice for him. He was thinking that because he paid the ultimate price, he would certainly inherit the kingdom. Whether it's the rich man who wouldn't sacrifice at all, or Peter who would sacrifice all, we don't inherit the kingdom by martyrdom or materialism. We inherit the kingdom by recognizing that we can't inherit the kingdom. What is impossible with men is possible with God. Unless it comes as a grace gift, we're not getting in. That's why Jesus says in verse 30, the last will be first. Because we get into the kingdom because God puts us in the front of the line by grace, not because we earned our way there. Which leads us to our final example. So, martyrdom won't get you in. Minimalism won't. Maturity won't. Morality won't. One more, our merit doesn't make us good either. Look at chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too. Whatever's right, I'll give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. Kept recruiting laborers later and later in the day. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, Then you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last, up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they'd receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, Hey, can we have a word with you? That's my explanatory insert. These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. What's the parable communicating? Well, the point is twofold. First, with respect to those hired later in the day, and second, with respect to those who were hired earlier in the day. The second group, those who were hired earlier, will be the main focus of the parable. And in this parable, Jesus speaks of the compassionate generosity of the landowner who creates the wor- who, who, who gives the workers hired later in the day the same as the workers who hired, were hired earlier in the day. He treats those later workers not according to what they deserve, but according to what they need. A denarius was just a day's wage, enough to feed a family for a day. Yet the workers didn't even seek out the job, the landowners sought them. So the tardiest of the workers get hired at 5 p.m. while some had been working since 6 a.m. And the workday ends at 6 p.m. and all get paid the same, whether they worked one hour or 12. The landowner gives everyone what he agreed to pay him. A denarius, a day's work, or at least a wage for a day's work. The early workers complain. They should have been paid more because they work more. But here's what the parable teaches us. We enter the kingdom by the kindness of the landowner, not the sweat of our brow. We don't merit the kingdom. It's given to us by the generosity of the landowner. When our gratitude for grace received begins to devolve into Jonah-like resentment that others less deserving have received the same grace, we show that we have not, in fact, understood our need for the grace that we claim to have received. Does that make sense? When we resent those who were brought into the kingdom, like, listen, if you read the the, the story of the thief on the cross, and you think, that guy doesn't deserve to get to heaven. And you have a problem with that? You have a problem with grace. Right? Or if you have a problem, if you look out over the congregation, and perhaps you've lived long with people, and you look and you say, okay, I remember when that person was younger and they sinned against me a ton, but now they're a Christian. I mean, are you thrilled about that? Or is it like, well, I'm glad God forgives them for their sins because I certainly won't. See, we don't understand the grace we've received. It's because we may not have received it. Maybe we just thought we did, but it touched our heads and not our hearts. Because when it touches your heart, who's the chief sinner in the room? Me. Come into church always feeling like the biggest sinner in the room. We should. Because in our own eyes, no one has sinned more than us. We're the ones that know it experientially. But that resentment can come if we don't understand the grace we've received. In fact, it was likely more grace. Since we didn't think we needed that much grace, which required more grace for us to see that we actually do need grace. (laughs) So we actually are recipients of greater grace than the people who, like, heard the gospel immediately and believed. Because we went on for two decades and didn't believe it. And God kept showing us grace and grace and grace and grace. See, grace is infuriating to the meritorious, though. It's amazing only to those who know that his grace saved a wretch like me. So, Pastor Mark, I know this uh, sermon has been full of good news. You've talked to us about what doesn't make us good. It's not minimalism. It's not maturity. It's not moralism. It's not martyrdom. It's not merit. Well, what does qualify us? What does make us good? We're given an answer at the end of chapter 20. The Messiah makes us good. The Messiah makes us good. This is why Christmas is so central. Look at verses 17 and 19. And Jesus, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. That's the big point that Matthew's been leading up to in his gospel. As people have approached Jesus for various reasons, saying, Jesus... Okay, what's the least I can do to get into the kingdom? You don't qualify. Jesus, don't, uh, wh- why can't the people of high social standing come? Why are you embracing the children? Because maturity doesn't make you good. What about the rich young man that was sent away? Moralism doesn't make you good. What about Peter who gave up everything he had? Martyrdom doesn't make you good. What about the, land- the guys who worked all day by the sweat of their brow to only earn a denarius? I mean, can't we get more than that? Merit doesn't make you good. What does make you good? The Messiah makes you good. Christmas makes you good when the Son of Man comes into the world to be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and get condemned to death. Why is he condemned to death? Because we're not good. That's why he's condemned to death. He's dying as the good one for those who aren't good, the righteous one for the unrighteous. We don't ask, what's the least I can give? Jesus says, what's the most I can give? I'm willing to give it all up for them the glories of heaven, everything I've enjoyed, all the privileges, all the rights, I'll go down and suffer for 33 years for them. Embrace their hell on the cross. Give it all up so that his love would compel us to love him and give our all to him. We don't need to think we must be in a right social group or a certain age to come to Jesus because he was cast out that we might be brought in. He made himself as a vulnerable child in the arms of his father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He was naked, exposed as an infant would be on the day of his birth, on the very day of his death. He was exposed before all, shamed, utterly insignificant, considered the worst and most marginal Galilean peasant to ever live. Who is this? Put Stick king of the Jews above it just to mock him. What kind of ridiculous guy is this? We don't need to think that we have to earn eternal life by our obedience because the only one who can truly say, all these commandments I have kept from the heart is Jesus Christ. And he did it for us. And we don't need to think we have to give the ultimate sacrifice or pay the ultimate cost to inherit a reward in heaven because Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice and he makes us his reward forever. He will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And we are that travail. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and we are that joy. We don't need to think we have to earn entrance into the kingdom by the sweat of our brow, working sun up to sun down to get eternal life, because Jesus worked the whole day, bearing its full burden on the cross, and was denied any wage at all, except the wages of sin, which was death. See, in the kingdom of God, dear ones, The one thing that qualifies us is knowing that we don't, but that Jesus does. And by union with him, by faith in him, we are made qualified, as Colossians 1 says, for the inheritance of the saints in light. He has qualified us, Colossians 1 says. We don't qualify ourselves. He qualifies us. The thief knew it. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Because I qualify you, you don't qualify yourself. All we need, dear ones, is need. That's it. And all we need to offer to God is the fact that we have nothing to offer. And trust Christ to save us. God is good to help us see that we aren't. Because in helping us see that we aren't, it helps us to see how good Jesus is. And we glorify God, and we glorify Christ. And even when we aren't good, God still is good, and he makes us good in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the many forms in which your goodness takes in our lives. We know that we are abundantly blessed as a people. You have showered us with much tokens of your goodness. But no greater goodness can you show any of us, and have you shown most of us, than to show us that we aren't good that we can't measure up that we can't do enough that we can't try hard enough that there's no amount of sacrifice that we can make that compares to the sacrifice of Christ and in fact when we try to give you something we actually say to Jesus hey I think you lied when you said it was finished I think there's something else that needs to be added I think I need to contribute something here. But thank you for showing us that our minimalism and our maturity, our morality, our merit, our martyrdom doesn't inherit the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't make us good. The Messiah makes us good. And so we worship you, Jesus, for giving us all of your goodness, imputing to us all of your righteousness, and giving us your Holy Spirit by which we are increasingly made good we become good. Not in a perfect sense, but but in a real sense. We get transformed and are made more like our Savior. Inch by inch, moment by moment, step by step in this life. And so we thank you for the ways in which your goodness makes us good when we aren't by nature. Continue to make us good. Continue to keep us humble. Continue to keep us dependent on our good, good Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond.